Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Paula Poundstone started her comedy career in Boston in the late 1970s, before taking her act and her life on the road to San Francisco. Poundstone broke through in a big way in 1984, when Robin Williams asked her to perform stand-up on the episode he guest-hosted of Saturday Night Live. She would go on to film two comedy specials for HBO and one for Bravo, become the first woman to deliver the keynote address at the White House Correspondence Dinner back in 1992, write columns for five years in the 90s for Mother Jones Magazine, and become a fixture on the NPR quiz show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, where you can still hear her regularly. In 2017, she published her second book, The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. And in June 2018, Poundstone invited me into her home in Santa Monica to sit with her dog and her many cats to see if we could find some more happiness to share. So let's get to it! I, I said, yeah, yeah, that's great. I'd love to do that. I said, but here's the thing. I have zero ideas. Mm-hmm. So he said, you have to tell me what topic you want me to write about. And then, you know, I'll, I'll go to town on it, but you have to tell me what topic you want. And so they did. They gave me a choice of like, you know, two or three things. And the magazine only came out every other month. Right. But, uh, you know. I feel, and, like, I feel like more people know about Mother Jones Magazine now. Well, they do because of uh, cable Cable news. I mean, David Korn is often on the cable news shows. Okay. And he's good. He's the he's a new editor. He wasn't the editor-in-chief when I was there. A guy named Jeffrey Klein. Okay. Uh, and Jeffrey Klein was so damn smart that I felt like um, just talking to him was worth a college credit, you know. So I feel like I got, you know, <laughs> it's not a job you get paid a lot of money for. Right. But I felt like I, I got a lot out of doing that, writing for writing for Mother Jones. And it's a really good magazine, although I have to say that, you know, they address such difficult issues that by the time you finished, it only comes out, or it did used to anyways, only come out every other month. And you couldn't take it more frequently than that. You know, you'd blow your brains out if you read it more frequently. Right, because the investigations are so complex and the issues so serious. Right, yeah, yeah. I remember reading... You read it and then you feel like you need to to do something about America at the end of it. Yeah. All right. I remember reading one one time that was a, a guy, one of, the, one of the journalists was following up on, he had done like a Save the Children thing or something where you sort of, you know, quote unquote, adopt a, a kid, meaning that you send money to the, you know, you know those ads in the middle of the night, you know, right. we'll send you a photograph. She'll send letters regularly. And, and so the guy went to sort of follow up and see, you know, how the kid lived and, and and it was just a hopeless situation. And, and, and I had done tons of that stuff prior to that. Um, not that it made me stop, but but anyways, it was it was it, it, they, some of their articles are really they I think they're right. It's just that you know you don't walk away. I, I do better with highlights magazine. Let me just say, <laughs> is that is that what compelled you to to start taking a totally unscientific search for? For, for human for, happiness. For, for human happiness? Uh, you know. And did you know that we would need it so much more in 2018 than in 2017 when the book came out? No. 
No, I really didn't. Um, I started, it, it took me seven years to write the totally unscientific study of the search for human happiness. It took me seven years, I think, to write it. Uh, uh, six or seven, I can't remember anymore. And uh, no, I couldn't possibly. In my wildest nightmare, I couldn't have predicted what happened in 2016. You know, I couldn't have predicted it that night. And I'm still, you know, uh, 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 what is it, been a year and a half? Since it's been a year and a half. Uh, I, I still, at least a few times a day, say to myself, and now I will wake up. I, I, I still haven't, it's just, it's an unbelievable thing that's happening. Do happened you think living in, in Southern California that that you can do that, that you can feel a little bit separated? No, I don't feel separated at all. First of all. Trump hates California. So right. he's, sort of, he's sort of had a war on California for a while. No, the whole thing is just so Alice in Wonderland. I think Americans electing Trump. No, electing Trump is to Americans what beaching themselves is to whales. <laughs> There's no, like, scientists still don't understand it. Yeah, why would they do that? It makes no sense. It seems like something that just hurts us. And why, why would we? And yet Go against our own self. Yeah. And then and then there's just so many weird things about the way it's been covered. Like for the longest time, like they've determined absolutely for sure that the Russians intervened. And yet they insist on saying it didn't affect the outcome. Really? How is that possible? That's a ridiculous statement. Of course, it affected the outcome. Maybe we don't know entirely to what degree, but of course it affected the outcome. And the other thing they've taken to saying and everyone just accepts it and nods their head like a bobblehead is um, – well, he lies or he exaggerates because he's a, a New Yorker and a real estate guy. That's like, that's why I ask you if you feel like because living in New York City, we can't escape it. So I wonder if being in Southern California, mean, you at ridiculous. least feel a little bit. I know all sorts of very friendly, very honest <laughs> New Yorkers. And I know people in real estate, not not tons, right. but that's uh, you would think that the the realtor, the New York Realtor Association, would rise up and say, "How dare you!" Yeah. It, that that's no explanation for how you know for him doing those. And plus, he's not in real estate anymore, anyways. I don't get the sense watching Shark Tank that that lady uh, Corcoran from Corcoran Real Estate, Barbara Corcoran. Oh, I've never seen it. But I don't get the sense that she's a crazy. Lunatic. Oh, is she? Oh, yeah. No, I've never, so. I've never seen uh, Shark Tank. I, I hear it referred to. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, va- I, I flipped by commercials for it. Well, but. it appeals to that American dream. Everyone can be an entrepreneur. Everyone can have that billion-dollar business idea. Yeah, yeah. And if you just got in front of some people with money, they would invest in you. Yeah, yeah. That's what's. And those happen. are the sharks. That's what's going to happen to me. I, I've had the same accountant. And he's gone through he's, – he's been with several companies himself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they, the companies have the name Wealth Management on them, which really makes me laugh. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that I have wealth to be managed. But um, I, he, he recently suggested that I get a, a metal detector. That's mm-hmm. how bad my uh, finances are, that really? I just go down to the beach with one of those things that beeps. Well – Santa Monica, Malibu. There's some. There's some you, pricey beaches here. Uh, yeah, you think I would? You think I would you maybe can, pick up a couple pieces you of might gold? Be able to make out. Yeah, all um, you need is one. I figure to have me for a client for. I, I mean, I think I've been with this guy for over thirty years, and and, and, and you figure that in terms of printing costs, mm-hmm. um, minus signs are cheaper than plus signs. 
So I have been saving him money. <laughs> Hand over fist, so they say. But see, when you got involved in comedy for the first time, and gosh, what was it? 40? 79. Do you start to say 49? No, not No, I was going to say 40 years ago. Oh, yeah. 39 years ago. Th- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you got involved, I mean, you weren't thinking about the money. Oh, I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because there I, wasn't even, you know, everybody talks about what the Boston comedy scene was like, but in oh, no, we made 10 there wasn't. We made 10 bucks a night. Uh, you know, I mean. Fran Salamita couldn't have made that movie in about 1979, Boston, when he, stand-up stood out. Uh, that was a couple of years after that. Yeah. Not many. Not many years after that. But um, Fran had left. He, he had left because uh, Fran and Jam were in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, him and his brother used to were a comedy team. Okay. Um, and they had left Boston. Am I right about that? Before I showed up? Well, right around the time I showed up or something. I don't know. They went out. They went out uh, to. They were in San Francisco okay. for a long time. There was like a trap door, like in the m- 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 board game Clue. There was like a trap door between San Francisco and Boston. There were okay. comics that were uh, um, like I. I started out in Boston in '79, and then a couple of guys. I was there for like I don't know a year or so, and not didn't get a lot of play time. Um, I it was a pretty misogynistic scene, honestly. It really was. I was going to say because you probably didn't fit in with. I di- I didn't. You know, and the I the Lenny I, Clark's and Dennis Leary's. No, and... I really did, and I hesitate to say that to some degree because I think Don that Gavin and... uh, you know when people say to me, "I don't like being a woman comedian," mm-hmm. I mean for the most part, I, a I don't I haven't been able to control the variables, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in most situations, when you know when you. <laughs> I didn't allow myself, fortunately, certainly back then, to spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about, you know, what was, what were the prejudices towards me that kept me from being hired a lot. I really didn't. What I, what I did was, I said, you know, I'm going to be undeniable. Mm. I'm going to, I'm going to practice doing what I do. To the degree that someone who doesn't hire me looks like an idiot, and and to some degree that was, that, that I think to some degree that was true. I was, you know, there used to be this commercial for um, grape jelly. I think it was. It was like Welch's jelly or something, and they, they showed this old sort of kitchen with uh, this big pot, and it had this tube up top and it showed I mean they just, I think they just made it up I don't think they ever made jelly and anything that looked like that but they showed this tube that had like this grape jelly stuff it said that the as the the steam of the grape jelly came out they put it back into the product and I think that's how I felt about my work I'm like you know instead of letting a certain amount just go free out of my frustration mm-hmm. you know I was just going to put Everything back into my work and and, Wait, and jelly steams. I, maybe it was juice. <laughs> maybe it was juice. I can't remember anymore. Now I all just, I can think about I is just remember steaming this jelly tube of mm-hmm. you know like not letting any not not letting anything escape okay. in a wasteful way. Mm. And I guess that that's the, that's, that's the important value of perhaps it was a Smucker's commercial. I can't uh, remember anymore. But um, yeah. So, so but they were and here's why in Boston. They were kind of, well, there was probably a few reasons, but one reason is Lenny Clark was the man. And Lenny's from Cambridge. He's, he, 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 and he's, Lenny was Facebook before there was Facebook. <laughs> Lenny knew everyone. 
And so, and he's a very funny man. And but the crowds that came out in the very beginning, not not now, but in the beginning, the crowds that came out were friends of Lenny's. Um, and and so there was a. They all had a sense of humor in common. Um, Gregarious. It was loud, mm-hmm. angry. Um, and, I thought gregarious uh, sounded nice. Uh, well, I don't know that I would call it gregarious. Okay. Um, it was no, a lot of loud and angry, mm-hmm. and 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 very misogynistic. And you know, I didn't particularly go over to that crowd. Uh, every now and then I did, but it was uh, it was it was tough. I, I I went on one night on an open mic night. This is after I'd left. But I had come back again, you know, every, I, could, I would come back every so often to work the clubs or whatever there. And, and I was there on an open mic night at the mm-hmm. Ding Hall. And Wednesday nights at the Ding Hall were so hot. I mean, we'd have these huge, uh, you know, packed, the Ding Hall would be packed. It, it wasn't a big club to begin with, but it would be it would be packed and the energy was really high. And Steve Sweeney, again, a very funny man. Um, he was the last. He was the last guy up, and then there was mm-hmm. an MC, and then they brought me up. And the last thing Steve Sweeney said, and he said it. The joke was that he was going to say. The joke was that he was getting more and more gross. Um, but the last thing he said was, "So I was eating out the cunt of a bear." And the the room went. Up. I mean, they loved it. Sure they did. And now, you know, please welcome Paula Poundstone. Well, it's very hard <laughs> to follow. Were you wearing the suits yet? No. Oh, heavens, no. I was what wearing... were you? So what were you wearing? I can't remember anymore. Oh. Uh, not, you know, uh, by that time, uh, I don't even know. I don't even know. Just <laughs> some... Uh, you can't remember a time before the suit. Uh, no, I do. I mean, for for a long, long time, I wore cowboy boots, jeans, a, 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 a shirt, and a, and a black jacket. I okay. did that for a long time, and so my, that, that might have been during that California. phase. But before that, it was, um, you know, I had a pair of like off white corduroys that I got somewhere, and uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I have to say, I, I didn't have. Are a there great... any headshots that? That prove this? I had I, one of my headshots was I mean a, in a turtleneck, which is my usual. I mean, if it were if it were five degrees cooler right now here in Santa Monica, mm-hmm. I would have a turtleneck on. Oh. It's a very New England garb. Yeah. It's not New England performing garb. No, but I didn't make that distinction. <laughs> um, I had very little money, so I didn't put a lot of money into into clothing. It was I, more practicality than comfort, or very both? much. I mean, I, I used to I bought tables for a living. I didn't. I was just watching the cat make you move all over. You can shove that cat no, off. It's not going to offend either one of you us. You have a few cats, but only one of them seems. That's my cat, Brittle. Brittle she loves the <laughs> Brittle loves the show business. She she wants she wants her own podcast. Yeah. So, you say you went to San Francisco because there was already a mm. kind of comedy no, here's railroad. Where we, so I started out in Boston, and then a couple of the Boston guys. Um, I, I guess I, I, I guess they went out to do the the San Francisco comedy, oh, the comedy competition, competition. Yeah, yeah. and so they uh, and on their way they um, they went to some different club you know different clubs in different cities and when I heard you know they were like Lewis and Clark to us mm-hmm. I mean they were like these or t- you know when when they when they would call a club like uh, at night w- from wherever they were. 
and and all the comics would gather around the phone and somebody would say, oh, they, they're in Chicago. And then they would tell us what they said. It was very exciting. And and uh, it was Don Gavin was one. But anyway, so once they had gone and looked at so I, prior to that, I didn't even realize there were clubs in other cities. I'm not sure I realized there were other cities. Um, and uh, but so after those guys did that, I got some addresses from them and some phone numbers and uh, and, you know, called and made arrangements for me to head out and do the same. And when I got to San Francisco, um, I the first night I went on stage was at a place called the Other Cafe. Oh, uh, it was a famous place. Oh, it was a great place. It was only there for six years, but it was, it was, ju- it was, it was in just the right location. It was in the Haight Ashbury district, but it wasn't on Haight Street, so there was um, not the so the amount of foot traffic was pleasant but not distracting. the The stage was in a corner, and. What one wall was like wood paneling, okay. and then the other wall was this big plate glass window, and they had this bamboo shade that they would roll down when it was showtime, so that there was this backdrop. Um, but I would roll the shade up so I could watch the people walk by on the street, and um, it was really really fun. Uh, very small club, um, but the first time I ever went on there, which was only the second night that I was in San Francisco, I just fell in love, and so I I didn't. Uh, I didn't get back on the bus. I just stayed. Was was the fact that that venue had the window looking out at the sidewalk, did that help prompt slash develop your improvisational Absolutely. Techniques? Absolutely. Um, I, I uh, and, and because it was just the right pace, as I said. You know, if it had been constantly people walking by, it would have been distracting mm-hmm. to the audience. But as it was, just every now and then, you know, a couple of people would wander by and I'd bang on the window. And sometimes I'd get them to come in and talk to me. And there were, to this day, I, I can be in a theater somewhere and somebody would come up to me after the show and say, oh, I saw you at the other cafe in San Francisco. They say, what was that bus that used to go by? And it was the 37 Corbett. Um, we the where the club was was on the route of the 37 Corbett. But when the 37 Corbett went by the other cafe, it never had anyone on it. So I would always say, you know, they, they not, they're not allowed to pick up people on this bus. And then of course it would go and it would be empty, and people were like they thought that was such amazing improv. Whereas the truth is, I'd seen that bus go by I don't know how many times. Um, one night there was, of course, the parking was terrible in San Francisco. Still is. I I, I drove this 65 Mustang that was. You know, you forget what life was like without power steering. Uh, but in its day, it was considered this sports car. Yeah. But now it was this huge ton of metal. metal excuse me. It was, oh, my God. It was hard to turn the wheel. So um, you know, I, one night I drove around. I drove around looking for a parking space. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. Finally, I pulled up in front of a fire hydrant that was right outside the club. So I could watch the car. From oh, right. and so yeah. a cop comes by, of course, and I I jump off stage and I run out front and I go, look it, I'm right here. You know, if there's a fire, I'm gonna get out. I'm gonna le- I'm gonna move. I'm gonna move the car. I can't remember if he let me get away with it or not. I forget now. Probably not would be my oh. guess. But uh, yeah, there was it, it had every show sort I thought of thought early '80s San Francisco it would have been. Nah, it's Let's never. Fair. No, it's never early enough to get out of a ticket. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Every every city's always wanted more money. Who are the other comedians in San Francisco that were part of your crew? Dana Carvey. Uh-huh. Uh, he was my roommate for a while. Um, let's see. I just had dinner in Modesto on Sat. No, Thursday night with uh, a guy named Dave Schuber, 
who used to be a comic in San Francisco. He's not a comic anymore, mm-hmm. but oh, we had so much fun reminiscing. Uh, a guy named Barry Sobel. Oh, Barry um, Sobel. Who else? Um, Kid Wonder. Uh, yeah, he's going to be an 80-year-old Kid Wonder. <laughs> I don't know why people still think he's a kid. He wasn't a kid then. Um <laughs> Oh, my gosh, I'm forgetting. There's a guy that I really like who came through there. He was also a Boston guy. Uh, all I can think – okay, he's been divorced. He did good <laughs> divorce jokes. That narrows it down, doesn't it? Yeah. What? How many comedians from Boston have been divorced? I can't even imagine why anybody would marry any of those people. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez, that's going to make me a crazy person. Not being able to think of that name. And it's a simple name. But see, this is how my brain works. I said to my daughter one day, I go, who's that actor I really like? He was in, uh, he, he starts with an M. He was in To Kill a Mockingbird. And then I go, Gregory Peck. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I work. Um, I can't remember who all else a, 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 anymore. That's terrible. There's a terrific, terrific comic named Jeff Bolt. Um, that that was uh, in San Francisco back then, and a wonderful guy named Bob Sarlat. Oh, I still, Bob Sarlat, you know, Bob. I still laugh when I think of Bob Sarlat jokes. Uh, he was he was terrific. As far as I know, he's still working, but he's terrific. Yeah, there was just a documentary that came out about um, a few years ago about a few of the San Francisco guys who are still San Francisco. Guys. Oh yeah, it was made for a good good documentarian. I thought. I I think I did see Will that. Durst, of course. Yeah, and, then... and two other guys I don't want. Oh, Larry Larry Brown was Larry one Brown. of them. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Larry Bubbles Brown. And let me tell you, <laughs> I named him Bubbles. We were get one night. One night. <laughs> you saw the look on my face and like, please there, go on. There was a thing I, I, for for a while uh, of going to hot tubs late at night. Sure. And uh, it was a little pricey for me, uh, but every now and then it sounded appealing. And so one night, me and Rebecca Irwin, uh, who used to run the Holy City Zoo back then, uh, and Larry Brown, we were like the last three people at the zoo, and we were talking about going. I I brought up the idea of going to the hot tubs. And uh, as soon as I brought it up, like Larry was a little too eager. (laughs) You know, he's like, yeah, we can do that. We can go to, and they're like, well, should we go to the, should we go out to eat? Larry's like, no, we can go to the hot tubs. We can go to the hot tubs. It was like so eager that both, both Rebecca and I were like, okay, we're not going to the hot tubs. I'll tell you that. And then, and so that, I guess that was the night that I, re- I called him uh, Larry Bubbles. Bubbles Brown. And after that, it's all, Stuck. it's all history now. Huh. <laughs> you know, it, it, it strikes just hearing you talk about thinking about going to the hot tubs with a couple other comedians. That's not the image that that I think I have or many people would have. One, that you would be in a hot tub. Two, that you would be in a hot tub with other comedians. Well, I may have worn a bathing suit. Let me just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, you know, it was the exper- experimental years. Okay. I probably was uh, – I, I probably knew less about what I wanted then than I do now. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I was – I was willing to try lots of things back then. That, <laughs> Go with the flow. Yeah, things that I wouldn't now. Things that I went, okay, I tried that, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, even like massages. I, I, A friend of mine gave me a gift certificate for a massage at a place called the Kabuki Hot Springs. I believe mm. it's still there in, in in San Francisco. And it's a very legitimate, you know, massage place. It's very Everything's very lovely, sort of, you know, some sort of bamboo pipe music. Uh, you know, everything's... Uh, um, but this, so this friend of mine gave me this uh, gift certificate for my birthday one year, and I'd never had a, a, a massage. And uh, um, so I go to this place, 
and it was she gave me it was a massage and and hot tub at and uh, okay. the hot tub is actually in this particular is not one with jets of water. It's just literally a tub of really hot water, and it's in this um, tile uh, tub that is sort of square and deep. So you couldn't lay down on it; you sit in it. Okay. Um, but it's it's very deep. So, anyways, I go in, and there's a, a Japanese American woman who, you know, explains in very broken English and a lot of hand gesturing. You know, get get undressed and lay down on the table or whatever it was she said, or maybe she said first go in the hot tub, but she said get undressed. And for each phase, like she leaves the room, it's all very discreet, you know. And uh, you know, they give you a little uh, robe or whatever. So now I go and I get in this hot tub and. It's really hot. And and then they come in and you get out of the tub and you sit on this little stool and she she rinses you off and loofahs your back, which is something, by the way, that I would have thought that I would hate. Um, but in fact, I have to say, it was kind of lovely. And so then she's same thing. You know, she indicates come lay down on the on the, you know, the mattress thingy or whatever it is. And, and, and then she leaves the room until you're laying down. Now I'm laying down on the thingy. And she she now she comes back in the room and the, the room with the hot tub is on the you have to go past the little bed thing in order to get the room. With the hot tub. She comes back in the room with a long metal pole with a hook on the end of it. I was terrified. I thought, oh, my God, what do they do with that? I almost levitated off the bed. I thought, I will run naked through the hallway to my car if I have to. And she walked totally past me, went to the hot tub, and used the hook to pull the plug out of the bottom of it. <laughs> so for, for, so I used to get massages every so <laughs> But things like that are of no interest to me anymore at all. Mm. I, I'm, I'm a very utilitarian person now. I don't, uh, as you can tell from my home, I have porch furniture in my living room because I just gave up. I have 14 cats, and the idea that you're going to have something all cushy with a nice cushion on it and upholstery is just a silly idea. Oh. So I finally gave in to the reality. Do the, do the cats have free reign throughout the house, or there I don't let them rooms? in my I don't let them in my bedroom. Okay. Um, because there just needs to be one place <laughs> that, you know, they haven't desecrated. <laughs> Um, but uh, my bedroom is an office. It's not. I sleep on the floor. I have a very utilitarian life. I have, I have very simple needs. How how do the cats react when you go on the road? I don't know. I'm not here. <laughs> they don't call me. Uh, I actually have. They have a nanny. I have. Someone, okay. I have someone who comes and stays with them because it's so much work. You really. It's not the sort yeah, of thing where someone can just stop by a couple times a day. You have to sift four times a day, and then the dog needs to go in and out, and you know. You know. So yeah, I have a. They have a nanny when I'm gone. Okay. Yeah, Do they you- like that. <laughs> they they probably like that better than me being home, because she does stuff like you know. The cats that seem more skittish, mm-hmm. she'll put them in the dog's cage to feed them so that they, the other cats aren't bullying them away from the bowls. And I'm like, you know what? Don't mollycoddle them. Mollycoddle. There's a good word. That's a great, great word, yeah. Uh, do you remember the first time you did Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Yeah. Yeah. It was um, before It was before we had an audience in front of us. We were still um, – we used to do it where – no, none of us traveled. We were all just wherever we were. Okay. So I, at that time, NPR had a studio um, on Wilshire Boulevard in, in Los Angeles, just down the street from my house. 
Um, and of course, they trashed that and made a new place in Culver City so that I have to drive mm. to get there. But but anyways, so you could I would just go and put the goofy headset on, and I was just in a room by myself. And uh, you know, Peter was in. Peter was so it in, wasn't live either then if there wasn't an No, audience. it wasn't. Peter Peter was in Chicago, Carl was in DC, Adam was in New York, and uh, we would all just be hooked up uh, via wire and there was no audience to respond. And um, what I remember most pleasantly about the experience was um in my headset, the director kept jumping in and going, um, say whatever you want. <laughs> Jump in anytime. That's great. That's very rare that you hear that in the show business. Yeah. You know, I mean, even reality TV is is, is scripted. And, 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 and um, wait, wait, don't tell me. Um, Peter works with a script. I remember when I first heard him use the word script because he wasn't in front of me, so I didn't see a script. And when I first heard him use the word script, I went, you have a script? <laughs> um, but he does because he's asking the questions and then he's, you know. They there have, has to be a flow to it. Right, as it turns out. Um, but so, uh, he, I guess he wasn't improvising it. No, he, he, I mean, he throws in improvised mm-hmm. stuff, of course, but he has a, he has a script. Um, but the, the panels have no script. Uh, we, we know that their questions are going to be about the week's news. Right. Um, the only thing we have written ahead of time is the bluff story, the bluff, the listener game. Um, we write our own stories. So what year was that first I've been on it for 17 years, and the show has been on for 20. Okay. And I probably did, oh, I don't know, maybe four or five of those shows with no audience before they m- m- embraced uh, the idea of, of, of having an audience, and they found a home for themselves in the basement of a bank in Chicago. And uh, um, So then what was that first live show like where you're not going to the npr studio you're so much fun you're flying to chicago uh, well yeah I mean, up in but i mean audience. having that audience there it just adds so much energy to the show and and it also you know it's sort of like a guardrail in um you know it's like the bumpers in bowling uh you know it tells you when you're you know when you're off the beaten path and when you're back on um just by their response and you can't help but play to that in, you know, um, so it's it's great, and we have really nice uh, uh, audiences. We tell ourselves they're intelligent, but I don't think you have to be all that intelligent to find wait wait funny. You know, I mean a lot. We there's a there's a fair spate of fart jokes and things like that on on wait wait. It's well, not well. My parents love you. They, well, there you go. They actually came to see you for uh, their anniversary gift three years ago. I'm very flattered. They That's came to nice see to you uh, when you performed at the Villages. In Central Florida, which is not oh my gosh, you know, like not a place that I would expect you to be at. You know, but probably I, that's why they were so excited to see you. I got that job, mm-hmm. and it was on my you know book, and I you know my uh, I mean my calendar, you know, but I don't know what it was. I think I was told it was like you know Orlando or something. They didn't tell me that it was at uh, a uh, retirement community. No Active one, adult. No one told me that. They just said Orlando. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I can yeah. work Orlando. Right. So as it got nearer, people even on Twitter started writing me, go, why would you be going to the villages? I, and I sort of looked it up and I went, oh, my God, why am I going to the villages? I called my manager. How the hell did this happen? And I got to say, I went. I had a great time. 
I, I, I have been told that it would be this very conservative crowd and that I would have a hard time there. I had a great time. Well, the place is very conservative, but that's not – I mean, I guess very conservative is 65 percent. Well, I guess population. not the very so. conservatives came to see me <laughs> right. or those who did, uh, you know, forgave me our differences because uh, I had a great time. Um, I, and I mean, I was prepared to do, you know, hand-to-hand combat. I was really prepared that I would just, you know, sort of stick it out even mm-hmm. though it wasn't going good. But it wasn't like that at all. It really was genuinely fun. Do, so, you, do you ever have those kind of audiences that oh, are? Oh, yeah, baby. Um, yeah, not a lot. Not a lot anymore because people come to see me. Um, it, it usually, it's not like people are showing up and going, "Oh, this is right." It's not, right, exactly. It's not a it's not a grab bag. It's there's no. Uh, sometimes people come um, that uh, uh, you know because friends encourage them to, and they've never seen me before. But a lot, I have also a pretty good um, what do you call it return audience and uh or people that'll tell me they've seen me in four different cities or or whatever like that so um, well it helps when you when you riff a lot because then it's not going to be the same show no it's never like some comedians from the 80s or 90s who do the same act for eight years yeah although if you like that act (laughs) you know i mean i i've listened to comedy albums more Mm -hmm. than once so if you like that act it's it's great, but yeah, no, it's always it's always somewhat different. I, you know, um, it was always me doing it. Uh, but and every now and then I'll get somebody who says, you know, well, you don't curse like that on NPR, and I go, I do. They cut it out. <laughs> People go, I thought it was going to be Emo Phillips, and you're not. Yeah, yeah right. I, you know, I like to use all the words I know. Mm. So, uh, so I do. So that, um, but that job with wait, wait, don't tell me. I mean, that came about at a time. Thinking back, I don't know where you really could use no the jolt. No, no, I no, I got the wait wait job. Wasn't that just before my life fell apart? Yeah, and uh, but they stuck with you. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And uh, I don't know how much friction. I don't know how much pushback they took for it uh, because I was kindly, you know, uh, not informed. Um, but I, I know some. I know there were some. People complaining, but 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 for the most part, um, no, they did stick with me, and I think it's been a good. Uh, I think we've, I think everyone involved has benefited. You know, I think it's been a good partnership. I, I, I'm good for them because I can work in that circumstance. You know, pretty reliably so far, anyways for. For 17 years, pretty reliably. I mean, uh, it's not like every word out of my mouth is funny. It's not that at all. But, um, you know. But it takes a certain skill set. It's it's a little, I think, like being a batter in a batting cage. You know, you get lobbed topics. And and sometimes I swing and I miss. uh, um, But every now and then I get a little piece of it. And and that works pretty good for them. And um, so, so far, so good. I hope it goes on, you know, forever. And uh, my goal... Every time I'm on is to knock Peter off his horse, and so uh, <laughs> that's kind of fun. Uh, you know, coming back to the present day, you know, we talked a little bit in the beginning about just the atmosphere we're in now politically, but then there's also, you know, the Me Too Time's Up movement. There's a sense of women reclaiming their, their power in the workforce. Um Reclaiming? Or claiming for the first yeah, time, yeah, yeah, since Cleopatra. Um, I don't know that much about her. Me neither. 
Did she get harassed in the workplace? <laughs> You'd have to think. Yeah. Um, do you do you feel like the fact that you're still in the game that this that there's there's more opportunities for you now? No. No, I feel absolutely thrilled to do what I do. Uh, I feel like the you know the 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 fact that wait wait found me. Um, and that we do so well together. Uh, I, I'm the luckiest comic in the entire world. I love the audiences that come to see me. I love... I had a, a driver the other day. You know, this poor guy is picking people up to go to the airport at, you know, five in the morning. I imagine pretty regularly. And he picks me up in the morning and he says to me, he says, man, I looked at your schedule. He said, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> and I said, I do it be, because I, my, the job itself, I said, the travel does get a little raggedy sometimes I said, but the job itself is renewing you know it's uplifting and so um no matter how uh i don't know no matter what's going on the rest of my life or no matter how tired i am uh or whatever i get to do this thing where i go on stage in front of people and say things that i'm hoping are funny and uh i consider myself a proud member of the endorphin production industry <laughs> Uh, it's good for you. I mean, it's good for your mental health. And nowadays, more than ever, I, I think we need everything we can get that's good for our mental health. And if they don't get it from you on stage, they have the book. They have the book. You know, I always say to people, I go, look at, do I want you to come out and see me? Yes, I do. <laughs> do I want you to buy my book? I would really appreciate it. <laughs> and your accountant would appreciate it. Yeah, it would make more plus signs than minus signs. But at the same time, the most important thing is just that you go out somewhere. I mean, audience members, that they go out somewhere. They don't even have to go to comedy shows, although that's probably a good thing sometimes. But just you know, be out among one another and you know, find those opportunities to... Uh, to, to laugh and let go a, a bit. I mean, it really is important. And with the isolation that screen devices have caused, um, uh, you really have to guard against the, uh, the symptoms of um, uh, electronics addiction and, and isolation. They, they, they say people who look at Facebook um, tend to be depressed, uh, and, and people have a hard time getting, you know, stopping looking at Facebook. Uh, I, I, I'm not a big Facebook person, but because to me it's a 24-hour holiday letter drip. You, you know, everybody's posting their brightest and their happiest sure. and their most wonderful, and, and we all have a tendency to look at that and go, "My life sucks." I need something to post on here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, it really is important to go out and be with one another. I say hi to people on the street all the time now. I'm very conscious of doing it um, because I feel that's missing. Um, with so many people walking with things in their ears and and uh, or you know sometimes I, I do talk on the phone while I walk down the street and even that I think it takes you out of takes you out of where you, where you are and appreciating your neighbors a little bit yeah I, I make a conscious decision to keep my phone in my pocket when I'm walking around yeah yeah um, which although that just makes me upset at everybody else who's not yeah right yeah that way there you especially can more, on the streets of New you York. can more comfortably stand in judgment no you know <laughs> the last time I was in New York I couldn't get over how many people were had a headset on or were talking on the phone and it's weird that they've purposely taken themselves to a place with so many people and then they're so desperate to get away from them it doesn't make any sense I mean they're not 
capitalizing on one of the most wonderful virtues of New York is all those people, all, all those, those people. differences, all those, you know, they're really astounding. Um, you know, of course, the real estate people, they're all a lie. <laughs> Um, what would you what would you tell a seventeen eighteen year old girl now who's got a funny bone and wants to explore using it? Would you what kind of advice would you give them? I think I'd say go to school. <laughs> I think I mean I didn't do Don't it. Don't do yeah because you yeah no I didn't but I'm an idiot and um, you know the truth is uh, a good liberal arts education would inform one's comedy anyways mm -hmm. and and then you have choices and you're not just doing something because you don't know how to do anything else um and and that's an important time of life i think to explore so that you know more about what you might want and so i yeah i would encourage everybody to go to and then when they're you know when that's done and they're you know ready to be a stand-up um, if that's the choice, then uh, you got to do what's in your heart. That's one of the things I recommend to people, um, and uh, and and then get as much time on stage as you possibly can. Um, and don't worry about who hires you. You know, when I was when I started out, it, it, well, they had a different format in Boston, partly because we had so little. Um, the, the, you know, there was so little honed talent, I think, in Boston um, when I started. I mean, a lot of us had just started. Was Jerry Crimmins there before you left or no? Uh, yes. Okay. He was there before I left, um, but I was there before he got there. Um, but, uh, right. you know, if when I started, like if somebody had been doing it for a month, they were an old hand. Um, and so they, they cleverly came up with this format for their shows for the most part, which was that the MC was the headliner. The MC was the person whose name drew people. And then, and then there would be like four or five other comics on the bill because no one had a lot of time. Um, it takes years to build up, a, 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 you know, a long set. Right. So everybody would do like, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it was. Um, and there were, like like I said, maybe four or five on the lineup. Whereas then I went out to the, you know, everywhere else that I went, it worked MC, middle act, headliner. And the MC um, might, have, might do like 20 minutes up front and then introduce the middle act and then go on after the middle act for just a couple of minutes before they introduce the headliner. And the middle act would do like 30 or 40. And so then the headliner went on, they only had to do an hour. Um, and everywhere I went, the MC, even if it was the first time they were hired, was desperate to be a middle act, and the middle act was desperate to be a headliner. I mean, I used to say to people all the time, first of all, if it's about the money, the money wasn't, it wasn't there wasn't going to be that much more money to middle than there was to MC anyways, but if it was about the money, just ask them to pay you more money, but... Be the very best MC there is, right? Get really good as an MC and don't let go of that job. This is you want a middle? No, thank you. I'll MC. Just kick me a little bit more money, right? Uh, uh, and no one ever took my advice. They always just wanted to go to the next and the next and the next. Well, and the it's next. still that way everywhere between New York and L.A. Is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where the MC is the weakest. Yeah. 
local person weakest act. Yeah, but they're not. But they're they're they're, they're but they're but they're but middle they're act always... has like a sweet spot. Twenty five minutes. Yeah, but they always want. That, but now sometimes they... the headliners are jealous of the middles because the middles. Right. They, don't yeah. have. Ch- well, and they get dropping. to go home. And yeah. they get to, yeah, and they get to go home when they're done. They can leave. <laughs> that really was a you know, like, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a something that one might have felt jealous of in those clubs. Um, but yeah, no, no one ever listens to me anyway. So well, they should. Yeah, they should. Well, I hope they listen to this. I so, hope so too. So thank you, Paula Poundstone. This yeah. is this is a, a treat. Well, thank you so much. I love talking about the show business. Ah, so is brittle. Yeah, Britta loves the business. She's so funny when she's talking into the microphone there. <laughs> this episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.